You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State, and I am your host, Josh Raley. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm getting fired up. We're just a couple of weeks out from the uh, the Wisconsin Archery Opener. Uh, super excited for that. I've got a notification today that says some of my new Vector Arrows are in the mail and uh, head in my direction. So can't wait to start flinging some of those. Uh, probably have to make a couple of last minute adjustments to my sight with shooting these arrows. I think they're gonna be just a touch lighter than what I was shooting last year, which is gonna be nice, you know, have a little bit flatter trajectory this year uh, once you get out to about 30 yards or so, but super stoked to be shooting those. I've talked to a lot of guys that are shooting them already and uh, they could not be happier with them. So, uh, hey, today we've got a great episode in store for you. I'm talking with several folks from the Wisconsin DNR about Wisconsin elk. Now, if you don't know already, uh, elk were native to the state of Wisconsin, pretty much the entire state. And then they were wiped out from uh, people expanding, you know, settlements into new areas, farms popping up in new areas, uh, and then also unregulated hunting. They were totally wiped out in the state. Uh, Now though, we have a huntable, although very few tags are available, huntable population of elk here in the state of Wisconsin. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about what happened to the elk in the first place? What did we do to sort of get an elk herd back in Wisconsin? And then what are goals from the future? As well, we're gonna cover a few of the things about the draw system, how you can enter to hopefully draw an elk tag. I think there are uh, something like eight or 10 tags a year, roughly. Uh, so not a lot of opportunity for folks like you and me, but hey, you know what? Some opportunity is better than none. This is a fantastic episode. If you love conservation, if you love Wisconsin, if you love elk, Think you're going to dig it. Going to keep this introduction nice and short today, so I'm just going to get straight to the point. I want to say thanks to our partners who help us make this show possible. First of all, Tacticam. They just launched a whole new line of gear. They've got a new 6.0 camera. It's fantastic. Has a screen on it. Let's you go back and rewind and play. Uh, you can watch a shot right there on the little screen. Obviously, one-touch operation like you're used to on your other Tacticam products. Obviously, waterproof obviously compact and light, just like everything else you know and love from Tacticam, but major upgrade from the 5.0 to the 6.0. 
that screen to me is is the game changer and i'm seriously considering not even carrying my big camera into the woods this year i don't know yet i have to play with it a little bit to to find out but man fantastic camera also loving my reveal x gen 2 cameras they just came out with a reveal x pro i've yet to get my hands on one of those but man the upgrades seem to be pretty significant on that so uh, yeah, you can check all of that out at revealcellcam.com or tacticam.com. Next up, Deer Lab. If you're looking for a way to help you store and organize all of your trail camera data all in one place, if you're looking for a way to kind of forecast deer movement and figure out what's going on, if you're looking for a way to figure out, okay, what is this buck doing on this specific wind? If you're looking for a good system to track specific bucks on your property, if you're looking for a good way to filter all of the trail camera data that you're getting, Deer Lab is for you. Right now, you can head over to their website, DeerLab.com, and get a 30-day free trial. They're not going to ask for your credit card or anything like that. You have absolutely nothing to lose to go give this thing a try. And then when you are ready to purchase, you can use the code WISCONSIN, all caps, for 20% off of any plan. And then finally, Huntworth. Man, I was out again this past week in the heat with uh, the Lodi pack. Man, that thing is just, it's stellar. I, I have zero complaints. I put like eight trail cameras in that thing this time. Uh, a couple of lock boxes, a couple of lock cables, and uh, man, it was just awesome. The thing is super tough. It's uh, lightweight in and of itself. It hauls a load well. It's soft and quiet. I love that pack. If you're looking for a good pack or looking to upgrade your camo this year, give Huntworth a try. They're making high quality camo without the sticker shock of a bunch of other brands. And uh, I'm actually sitting here right now and on my table, I have my whole early season kit uh, lined out. I've got my gloves ready, got my hat ready, got my uh, lightweight pants ready. And uh, man, I cannot wait to get out into the woods with this camo gear. This will be my first fall putting this stuff into use. And I've been testing it out and the camo patterns are amazing. I'm using the Tarnin pattern this year. And uh, man, it's going to work for, for pretty much anything I ask of it. So head over to their website, check them out, huntworthgear.com. With all of that said, now let's jump into the show, Talking Wisconsin Elk. All right, joining me for this week's episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is uh man a whole group of people from the wisconsin dnr how's it going everybody great how are you good doing very well doing very well i'm gonna let you guys uh introduce yourselves here uh just for the sake of not butchering all of your names so josh let's start with you and then you kind of can figure it out for yourselves as to who goes next yeah thanks joshua um my name is Joshua Spiegel, a wildlife biologist out of Hayward, Wisconsin. Um, pretty much cover the uh, northern elk management zone here with the state of Wisconsin, as well as some general statewide elk management duties. So I've uh, been in this role for um, for a few years now, um, dating back a couple of years, and, and I've been working with Wisconsin elk since 2012. Awesome. Awesome. What, do, Josh, what does your day-to-day look like? Uh, it depends. You know, some days you get hung up in the office handling a lot of computer work, but uh, uh, luckily for me, I, I get to go out and do a lot of, lot of field work as well, whether that's uh, habitat maintenance on the ground or uh, different projects we're trying to complete in the field, as well as uh, assisting some of our other folks like Jen here with uh, some of our research work. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jenny set you up for that one, so I'm going to let you go next. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Josh. So my name is Jen Prystack. I'm an, a researcher here in the DNR, and so I work with elk pretty extensively. And I've been in my position for about three years now, and my job's twofold. One is to work with the uh, elk advisory committee and then also to 
inform management decisions. So basically I provide the most, the best available science to help inform those decisions. And then my second, the second part of my role is to develop research projects to meet research needs. So there's like a gap that would help better inform elk management in the state. I'll develop a project around that and, you know, just provide the best evidence I can. Awesome. What, and with that, I'll uh, pass it over to Christine. Yeah. Well, real quick, before we get to Christine, I, I got to ask, what are some of the, the big, I guess, research projects that you've got going on right now? Some of the questions that you're trying to answer. Yeah, great question. Well, one of the things we're working on is, uh, especially working with Christine and Snapshot, is how can we accurately estimate elk population sizes? And specifically working with the committee as well, one of the things that came to light that's really important for elk management is being able to predict how harvest quotas are going to affect the bull age distribution. And so that's one of the things we're doing is we're working on how can we use Snapshot, how can we use the data that we're collecting to estimate population by age and sex class. And then how can we tie that into a predictive model to help us make the best decision we can that we can for elk? Yeah. So I know with, with wildlife management in general, there are some, some critters that are a little bit easier for us to count. And then there are things like wild turkeys that it's like, we have no idea. We have no idea how many of them there are because we can't, we can never tell. Uh, how is it with elk? It, does it seem like there's a, can you get a good number or a good feel for the number? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And you can, but it's not as easy as, you know, we would hope. And so we're actually working on a couple different methods right now to figure out which one's going to be effective. Is it doable? Absolutely. The biggest challenge is doing it cost effectively. So that's what we're working on. Oh, and then a couple other projects. We do have some graduate students, one who just finished up and she was looking at some of our data and evaluating um, elk forage and how elk are using uh, wildlife openings and then young forest openings as well. And then we have another one who's a PhD student. She's working on some nutritional questions as well. And also looking at how elk are using landscape and making decisions about where to forage given quality of forage, where it's located, and then also predation risk from wolves, bears, or predator um, assemblage. Interesting. Interesting. All right, Christine. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, like Jen, I am also a research scientist with Wisconsin DNR. Uh, my role is, in part, a big part of my role is to provide leadership to Snapshot Wisconsin Project. Um, Snapshot Wisconsin, for folks who haven't heard of it, is a wildlife monitoring program where we partner with the public um, and generate a whole bunch of data uh, that helps DNR make wildlife management decisions. So the basic idea behind Snapshot snapshot is that volunteers post a network of trail cameras across the, across the state that take uh, snapshots of animals as they pass by. And a whole bunch of our monitoring effort is focused on elk in Wisconsin. So that's a specific subset of the Snapshot Wisconsin project that's, that's really focused on better understanding our elk population. Wow. Wow. So what does your day-to-day look like then? I mean, it sounds like that's really, really broad. It is. Yeah, that's one thing I really like about my job is that uh, no day is the same. Um, you know, I could be sitting in front of the computer crunching numbers one day. I might be out talking with members of the, the public about the research and about the impacts of what they're doing. Um, working with a team, it's a large team that helps to keep the Snapshot Wisconsin project going. Um, so I'm making sure we have enough trail cameras. 
uh, coming in and, and going out the doors and helping to recruit volunteers. So really just a, a little bit of everything. Yeah. And that snapshot Wisconsin piece is uh, why I reached out to you guys in the first place. You had a, I believe it was a post on Instagram uh, sort of communicating the, the opportunity that folks had to help out with that. Now, is that a, a, a program where you provide the cameras to individuals or are you recruiting people with their own fleet of cameras and letting them sort of maximize their own resources? Yeah, the former. Um, so we are providing all training and equipment that volunteers need to participate in the program. I know a lot of folks already have trail cameras that they're using for, for hunting, um, but this program is a little bit different in that we want to make sure everyone is using the exact same trail camera setup, setting their trail cameras up in the same way, and that provides some consistency and rigor with which we're monitoring um, wildlife, including elk. And uh, so volunteers don't need any prior experience. Uh, they don't need any uh, familiarity with trail cameras or need to have any um, background knowledge. Uh, we provide that all from the, the cameras, batteries, SD cards, everything they need to participate. Interesting. Very good. Well, before we jump into maybe some of the nitty gritty of all of these different pieces, I want to ask, you know, some, some big topic questions just about the elk herd in general in, in the state of Wisconsin. So, uh, first of all, what led to, uh, the elk population, I guess, originally being, uh, eradicated in the state or was it ever, was it ever at zero basically? Yeah, that's a good question, Josh. So, uh, historically speaking, um, uh, pretty much the entire U S was covered by elk and, uh, Dating back to early European settlement uh, expansion, started creating some of the the issues with um, with uh, the the local uh, community, the the animal community that was that was present before European settlement. And uh, the big thing here in the state of Wisconsin was uh, the great cutover, you know, coming through and and uh, and kind of removing a lot of that forested habitat for for lumber and and wood uh, products within the U.S. here. Uh, and then it, unregulated uh, hunting was, was the other major thing. So um, we know that elk uh, were on the landscape in Wisconsin historically. So about uh, at least 50 counties of our state, 72 counties, have some type of historic record of elk. Uh, bones, antlers, something that was found within that county uh, dating back to, you know, many, many, many years ago. So. Uh, about 1886, uh, the last known elk was removed from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, that occurred somewhere in central Wisconsin, west of Stevens Point. There was a, a shipping receipt, so a lot of these elk were actually removed from the landscape and shipped to meat markets uh, at some of our, our um, nation's larger cities. So a shipping receipt was found to uh, the, the last remaining elk known at that point in time. So that was that was kind of when elk were removed from the landscape uh, historically. So that kind of put us at that zero mark you were talking about. Yeah. So thinking about the original distribution of elk, you said something like 50 counties. Um, what parts of the state did not or don't have evidence, I guess. I, so I have a, a friend of mine who found an elk antler um, in a creek, I guess. I don't know if it was a, I, I don't know, really old, I guess. Um, in a creek out in southwestern Wisconsin. So, what what parts of the state maybe don't have evidence of a of a herd originally? Yeah, so so most of our evidence found uh, similar to what you spoke of there kind of happened in that 
southern, southwestern, west central portion of the state. So you know you can think of the the more the, the plains, prairies uh, that that Wisconsin has. Um, to be honest, most of our um, landscapes that or most of our counties that haven't recorded historic elk finds uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not up there. They just haven't been found and. And most of that's been documented or uh, not documented in northern Wisconsin. Um, part of that is it's, it's a little bit more remote environment. You know, there's likely stuff out there that, that just hasn't been found yet. So the assumption is that we have had elk uh, throughout the entire state at one point in time, just uh, don't have the evidence that, that has been found historically in that. But uh, again, yeah, primarily that southern, southwestern, and kind of west central portions of the state uh, elk are um, you know, uh, primarily a grazing species through the, the summertime months. So uh, those areas with, with large rolling plains, et cetera, were, were very attractive to elk. Yeah. So with with elk, uh, let's say basically being eradicated in the state sometime around 1886, um, when did reintroduction efforts begin? So the, the first efforts actually began in 1913. So um, you know, this kind of this kind of occurred through most of the eastern U.S. when when uh, many species were um, were kind of noticed that something was going on. You know, hey, this this human aspect we're, we're really having a negative impact on the landscape. So uh, during that time frame, a lot of different places started the the idea of conservation and keeping la- animals on the landscape uh, for long term recreation. You know, not just uh, a, a take mentality, but um, you know, viewing, uh, the native landscape, et cetera. So, um, from an elk standpoint, uh, um, Yellowstone had just been created on the landscape. It was, a kind of a hot pocket for elk in the U S. So, um, they started shipping elk from Yellowstone to a lot of Eastern states. Um, you know, Wisconsin being one of them, we took what was called a carload of elk. Um, I'm not entirely sure what numeric value that is, but uh, we received a carload of elk in, in 1913, as well as a small supplement in 1917, uh, and they were held in a state-owned game pen in the greater Trout Lake area, north of Monaco Woodruff area. Um, those elk kind of remained on that pen for, for quite some time and, and uh, uh, were released on the landscape kind of around the greater depression time frame, the late 1930s. Um, they were eventually released on the landscape when it became difficult to maintain that pen. And, and ultimately those were extricated as well. So uh, again, we went back to zero on the landscape. I believe the, the highest amount of elk that came out of that group was about 45 animals in size. Um, and then uh, again, reduced, um, uh, an important side note that we can uh, eventually build on here, but the state of Michigan received seven elk from Yellowstone in 1918, and, and that comes in important into Wisconsin's second elk reintroduction effort. Okay. So the second one in, you know, night, what was it, 19 or 17 that, that, that we got more or, or later on? No, nope, later on. So that was still part of that first pen. Uh, the, the first group of elk weren't released from the pen until I believe uh, 1932. Um, uh, somewhere in that time frame, so that was still part of that first effort. Yeah, and some of the things that that led to elk being wiped out the second time is it still unregulated hunting or poaching or something along those lines? Yep, exactly. Um, you know, you, you talk about that time frame, the Great Depression, uh, 
a lot of issues with folks providing for their family and whatnot. And, and, you know, here's an animal that's lightly regulated at best. Um, you know, if, if someone could find a way to get it home, uh, that probably meant a lot more to them on the dinner table than it did, uh, on the landscape at that point in time, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. You mentioned that a lot of the Eastern States in those, in the 1910s, I guess, were, were bringing elk. I know my home state of Alabama, uh, I think brought in like 50 or 55 elk in 1916 and they were very quickly wiped out. Uh, that don't, I don't think they lasted long at all. I don't know how the, the story goes or if they had a pen or anything like that, but I know that they didn't, uh, they didn't last very long. So tell me a little bit about the, the second wave, I guess, of trying to reestablish elk in Wisconsin and kind of, um, how that differed from the first. Yeah, no, the, uh, the second wave kind of came about, there was a, a really strong grassroots effort from uh, a lot of folks here within the state of Wisconsin, you know, general public members, as well as uh, University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, where uh, we're kind of working together and, and they decided to do a, uh, a feasibility study to see if there was a large ungulate that historically uh, was on the landscape here in Wisconsin that, uh, that theoretically could be brought. Uh, brought back from uh, experts uh, from uh, um, from being removed from the landscape. So uh, what they did is they looked at three animals. Uh, one being the elk. Obviously, we're we're kind of talking about that on this year podcast. But the other two were were moose and woodland caribou. And um, Dr. Ray Anderson at UW Stevens Point kind of kind of spearheaded a lot of those efforts. And uh, so they started looking in depth in, into what the state of Wisconsin has. You know what the landscape currently offered and and the needs of those animals, uh, among many, many other things. And ultimately it was decided that, you know, moose with their susceptibility to brainworm and, and the amount of white-tailed deer that we have throughout most of the state, um, probably wasn't a great idea to put, put effort, uh, into, uh, bringing moose back. Um, secondly, they looked at the woodland caribou and, and woodland caribou are primarily a boreal forest, uh, dwelling species and, Unfortunately, through a lot of what had happened through uh, European settlement and the settlement of the state of Wisconsin, um, a lot of that habitat had been changed, degraded. Uh, um, uh, it no longer offered the same value for the woodland caribou as it did, and and so that one was kind of kind of erased from that. Kind of leaving elk, which are uh, a very strong generalist species that that can survive in many many different types of environments. So. Uh, they were kind of kind of picked as that that token species that that uh, could make a run back at at the state of Wisconsin here. So uh, once that was completed, um, there was like I said, this strong grassroots effort. So not only did UW Stevens Point start looking into stuff, but there were uh, many many uh, members of the general public across the state that kind of formed a, a coalition or a group to to start pushing this through and. Um, you know, they, they got a lot of support from the general public in the state of Wisconsin. And, and ultimately that ended up at the governor's desk and, and governor Tommy Thompson, uh, uh, basically granted approval for UW Stevens point to start an experimental study with, uh, with elk on the landscape. So, um, in the year 1995, uh, the state of Michigan granted 25 elk to the state of Wisconsin through governor Tommy, Tom, uh, Tommy Thompson. So. In 95, those 25 elk were translocated to the Clam Lake area, which was designated as one of the release areas um, that had suitable habitat around it. So um, throughout this entire process, uh, 
uh, Dr. Ray Anderson did a, a habitat analysis and um, uh, multiple places were kind of designated. Um, Clam Lake was selected because uh, A, the amount of public land that, uh, that kind of surrounded the greater area. It's, it's a huge hub for the, uh, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, Shawamigan, Nicolay, Great Divide District. A um, uh, lot of public land, a lot of recreation, and that land has been in public ownership for quite some time. Uh, one of the other major reasons tied into that and, and kind of unique for, for this opportunity, what was called the ELF line, the Extreme Low Frequency uh, Headquarters. This was a large uh, radio uh, center that used uh, submarine communication uh, across the world. So it was one of two places in the U.S. that this was built. It's a, a giant X pattern on the landscape where the land was cleared. Each finger of that X was somewhere between 15 and 18 miles in length. And it was cleared at about a hundred yard width all the way through that line. So this, this giant X created a, a, a huge travel corridor and B, a, a bunch of open landscape. Um, that was used to communicate through the Cold War uh, with submarines across the world. There's a, a second one that was created in Montana. Um, once that was decommissioned and, and all the, uh, the equipment was removed, it basically provided a, a giant open space on the landscape. So right at the, uh, the crotch or the center of that X is, is a location that was designated for a release site. So when we received those 25 elk, hey, we've got this huge corridor that runs all across this public land and it really offered opportunity for the elk to, to spread out and, and start using some of that, uh, that public land that, uh, that was in the greater Clam Lake area. Wow. Wow. How, I'm curious how uh, reintroduction of elk to Wisconsin compares to some of the other Eastern states. So I know states like Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and others have reintroduced elk. What are some of the differences, I guess, when it comes to reestablishing a herd and maybe some, some challenges that are unique to Wisconsin that say a Kentucky is just not going to face? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question because there's, there's multiple levels to this, you know, similar to what Wisconsin saw in the early 1900s, many other Eastern states, like you had also mentioned, Alabama had done that same thing. Michigan being one of them, Pennsylvania being another, uh, along with a, a few other places. And, and many of those, uh, those, uh, locations, um, so pretty limited growth, you know, you're, you're talking about um, more or less uh, watching from the sidelines as animals kind of got used to that landscape again, you know, the, the management on the ground, active management wasn't a huge thing yet. Um, I know Pennsylvania, their, their population slowly grew. And then it was in the late eighties when Rocky mountain elk foundation stepped in kind of uh, upon their uh, conception and said, Hey, we have to actively be on the landscape managing it to improve the habitat for not only elk, but, but many different wildlife species. So um, you kind of hit that same time frame where, where active management really started taking off. Um, you know, it was, it was fairly passive prior to that, uh, more monitoring, seeing what's going on, et cetera. So, um, so that was a huge step. And then kind of that second wave is similar to us, a state like you, you'd mentioned Kentucky, uh, they had reached out in the late 90s um, uh, to a few different western states, and, uh, and they brought elk in at, at roughly the same time the state of Wisconsin did. The state of Wisconsin did it as, as more or less a, an experimental project, and Kentucky kind of stepped forward and said, no, we will be bringing elk back. So they brought in about 1,550 elk to the state of, uh, of Kentucky, the eastern portions there, 
um, and, and uh, released them all along the, the greater Appalachian mountain landscape. Uh, and their population uh, obviously took off very well too. So uh, again, they, they put a, a bunch on the landscape and, and uh, kind of fell right in that time frame where active management was occurring. Um, a lot of the Eastern states there that, that seen a lot of elk and have seen Eastern elk uh, or, or reintroduction of Rocky mountain elk uh, within Eastern us um, kind of relate to that. Uh, the Appalachian mountains, uh, uh, a lot of that coal mining community that had these, uh, these large open landscapes where elk could really take off similar to that of, of the Western U S. So, um, Kentucky was right there doing the same thing, uh, along with, uh, you know, th- th- this day and age, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, et cetera. So, um, a lot of these Eastern states that, that took advantage of the landscape as it was today. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious now you know, looking long-term for, for elk in the state of Wisconsin, what has the population growth looked like? I mean, obviously there's a small hunting season for them now. Uh, what might be the goals for the future as far as number of animals that we think that the landscape can handle uh, as well as geographical region? Where all would we like to see them? Is there, you know, is there hope to let's get them everywhere that they can be in Wisconsin? Or is it, ah, we really think that this area here is, is where they need to be? Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. So obviously, you know, like our like our previous discussion, we, we've kind of uh, stated that uh, historically speaking, elk would uh, would have likely been throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. Now, I, I think the the major thing to that is um, it's likely not as feasible anymore. You know, we, we probably shouldn't have a herd of elk in downtown Milwaukee. Um, you know, that's that's probably not in the goals moving forward. But be kind of um, fun though. But with <laughs> with Within the state of Wisconsin here, you know, there's, there's tons of these large blocks of public contiguous land, uh, um, you know, across northern Wisconsin and parts of central Wisconsin, primarily that west central forest type area that, uh, that allow us as public land managers and, and our partners to, to provide increased habitat for elk. Now, obviously, there's, there's uh, different situations. We kind of talked about, the, you know, the cities. Uh, um, the highways that kind of run throughout there, you know, these are all uh, major things when it come on the landscape. You know, there weren't vehicles traveling 70, 80 miles an hour in, in 1980 uh, on the landscape that, uh, um, that that kind of caused a negative issue when it comes to, to vehicle collisions with elk and potential injuries, not only to humans, but elk themselves. So, um, so it's going to be kind of a balancing act of these, these locations throughout the state that could handle elk um, at a, a safe and social capacity, but also uh, a natural capacity, you know, how many, how many per landscape. So right now we have uh, two locations within the state uh, up here in the north uh, in the 1995 release and on. We have what was originally called the Clam Lake Elk Range, and that's since been renamed to the Northern Elk Management Zone. Um, in the central area, we have what's now known as the Central Elk Management Zone, and that was previously known as the Black River Falls Elk Range. Um, so uh, we've got these two blocks of, of land that, uh, that are kind of laid out for elk management, laid out for our partners to use. Uh, moving forward, we have a goal for, uh, we shot for about 100 or uh, one elk per square mile, a little better than that on, on our landscape. So up here in the north, um, we have a population goal of 1,400 elk on our landscape. Um, down south uh, in the central elk zone, we have a goal that's currently sitting at 390. 
Uh, but we're sitting with a new elk management plan uh, that we're, we're waiting for approval through uh, the process in which the, the Wisconsin DNR and Wisconsin Elk Advisory Committee um, puts forth a plan to be approved by the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board. And, and we're kind of getting to the final stages of that here. So uh, that plan would target uh, elk management over the next 10 years. And what we're kind of recommending within this plan here is, is that we focus elk management within our two current zones uh, before looking outside the borders uh, into the future. So at least for the foreseeable future, we want to continue growing our, our herds within our, our current zones. Yeah. So as we work towards some of these goals, I want to shift gears and maybe talk a little bit about uh, the research element, uh, the research side of things. What are some of the, I guess, the challenges that we're finding when it comes to managing elk? What are some of the the big questions that are just going unanswered? And what are some of the things where it's like, boy, we really need to collect a lot more data, you know, to, to be able to make informed decisions? Yeah, we'll throw it over to, to Jen for this one. And, and I'll supplement if she shoots over to me. So take it away, Jen. Yeah, we have. Uh, I mean, I, I love this this space. Like applied science is definitely where my passion is, trying to help inform management decisions and crafting these research projects in order to meet those management needs. You know, uh, we provide, our, our team provides, manage our, provides like population estimates and um, various herd metrics for each of the herds every year to that elk advisory committee. And then we also provide population models that project the population in the future. So when I got started as DNR back in 2019, started working with these folks and really talking about like, what are the objectives of elk management? And listening to those conversations, then we adapt our modeling and we create decision tools or forecast tools that help better evaluate the management alternatives. And in this case, it's primarily quotas. And one thing that came to the surface pretty quickly in some of these conversations with the advisory committee was that, hey, we're really interested in how harvest is affecting the bull age distribution. There are these trade-offs, right, where you want to provide as many tags as possible. You want to provide opportunity for hunters. But then you also want to, you know, you want to acknowledge that the mature bulls can provide additional benefits. There's this wow factor. I think that's what Josh usually calls it, a wow factor of mature bulls that brings in a lot of tourism dollars. There are also ecological benefits to having those mature animals in the population. So there's this trade-off, right, of wanting to provide sufficient tags, but also ensure that we do have a sustainable population moving forward. So what we've done is we've tailored our decision tools. We've tailored our monitoring efforts to better address those questions, to, to better understand how many bulls are on the landscape within each of these age classes. We use three age classes. So we look at spikes raghorns, and then mature bulls. And then using that information, then also projecting it forward. And so we'll use things like harvest success rates and success rates for each of those bull age categories so that we can take the best information that we have available and forecast the population over time. So that's something we're doing a lot of right now is just like tailoring that work and making sure we have parameter values to feed into that population model. So that's something that really that's critical right now. And we have a PhD student, Jen Miram's at University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's co-advised by myself and then Tim Van Dielen there. And she's been running survival analyses to give us the best information on survival of those full age categories, but also of 
cows and calves so that we can populate that model and get the most accurate predictions. So that's pretty exciting. And then we're asking some additional questions with that research project. So what are the sources of mortality for elk? You know, which ones are, are the most important, which are driving the population? Yeah. What, what are some of those factors then? Like what, what is, um, how are the, these elk that aren't hunter harvested? Like what is leading to uh, elk being taken off the landscape? Yeah, it's a great question. And she's working on those analyses now, so I don't want to give too much away with her preliminary results. But certainly there are anthropogenic sources like Josh alluded to earlier with elk vehicle collisions. That's one. Predation is absolutely part of the picture. You know, we have um, an assemblage of both wolves and bears, especially in the northern herd, central herd, not as much. And well, I mean both herds, but I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think we have all the information quite yet to like really tease it apart, but it's something that she's absolutely working on and it's going to help us better understand what management actions may also bolster the population. Like where can we reduce mortality potentially to grow the population quicker? Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. Their gear is made for outdoorsmen by outdoorsmen. Archery openers are just around the corner, and Tacticam has just released several new products to help you share your hunt and take your scouting to the next level. Topping the list is their 6.0 point-of-view camera, providing 4K footage and a user-friendly, waterproof package. They've also just released the new Solo Extreme, giving you HD footage, 3 to 8x zoom, and one-touch operation. And Tacticam's lineup of point-of-view cameras is supported by the best mounts and adapters on the market. This fall, I'll be using their bow stabilizer mount as well as their bendy clamp mount to make sure my cameras don't miss any of the action. And last but not least, Tacticam just launched the Reveal X Pro. With no visible flash, built-in LCD screen, and built-in GPS tracking, the Reveal X Pro will help you take your scouting to the next level. You can learn more about these and Tacticam's entire line of products at Tacticam.com or RevealCellCam.com. This episode is also brought to you by DeerLab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. DeerLab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. DeerLab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them, deer, turkeys, people, whatever. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target, and you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you occasionally forget to set the correct time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can get a free trial on there for 30 days, and then when you're ready to buy, use the code WISCONSIN at checkout for 20% off of any plan. Now let's get back to the show. I know in in the whitetail world, uh, wolves get a really bad rap. Um, and I'm assuming that for those who are big proponents of growing elk populations in the state of Wisconsin, there might be some similar some similar things. What are you guys learning when it comes to interactions between wolves and elk here in Wisconsin? Yeah, that's a great question. And part of Jen Miram's PhD work as well. And some of the things we're beginning to find, these are all preliminary results, so they're not finalized yet. But, you know, with within the elk herds, it still seems like wolves are opportunistically preying on elk rather than targeting them. And we're finding that out by looking at collared elk and collared wolves in the area and seeing how spatial patterns, how are elk actually moving in relation to predation risk. And so right now we're not finding as much overlap as maybe we thought there would be. So that's indicating to us that 
you know, wolves are still focusing on other prey sources like white-tailed deer, but they will still opportunistically take an elk if they get an opportunity, if they get that chance. Yeah, so you're not seeing packs of wolves following herds of elk around the landscape. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Christine. The one, we, we, the one thing I will add to that quick, Josh, sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. Um, no, I, I think it's a really important fact. And, and like you said, you know, they, they kind of get uh, most of the rap on it. And, and to be honest, you know, wolves are, wolves are the only uh, predator that we have here in the state of Wisconsin that can take down a mature adult elk. You know, you're talking about cows that are running somewhere in the 500 pound range and bulls that can be up to upwards of 900 plus pounds. And, uh, really outside of the first few months of, of age, you know, by time fall, that first, first calf is born. Um, it's able to, to outrun and, and be with uh, a herd of other elk that, that help protect it. So, um, you know, the other predators, like, like Jen kind of mentioned, you know, you, you want to discuss bears and bobcats and coyotes, you know, they're able to, to help compete that competition at a pretty young age. Um, really only leaving wolves on the landscape as, as a dominant predator. So, uh, of course, they're going to see the majority of the predation because they're the only ones that can do it. So that is a major factor is, is how big they are as an animal on the landscape. Yeah. I'm curious real quick, how, how do the sizes of elk in Wisconsin compare to some of their western kin? So they, uh, I'd say historically dating back to the, the elk of 95 and, and obviously those related to, uh, to the Michigan elk, um, you know, we, we had seven elk, uh, that really started Michigan and Wisconsin's population. So you talk about that heterozygosity and, and, uh, genetic diversity, uh, being more so, more so, uh, you know, pretty thin, pretty, pretty small, um. Uh, one thing that was really cool and why we designated the state of Kentucky is because of that, uh, that high uh, heterozygosity, uh, genetic diversity, uh, if you will, of, of those elk in the state of uh, Kentucky coming from six different western states. Um, we see their body sizes, average size of calf at birth, uh, success rates, except everything has gone way up. And, and we're noticing that with our Wisconsin elk as well. So since we've kind of supplemented with these Kentucky elk, uh, we're seeing body sizes, antler size, uh, calf sizes at birth, everything's starting to go up, you know, bigger animals. So, so there's definitely a major player to that. And, um, and so we're, we're getting to the point where our elk are, are getting to be the size of Western States. Um, obviously those are the cream of the crop, if you will, out there, but, uh, but, uh, they're, they're very good, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Christine, I'm, I'm curious how Snapshot Wisconsin factors into all of this. Um, I'm sure there's a lot that you're looking for. You kind of gave a 30,000-foot view earlier. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the program and about specifically what you're looking for with the data that you collect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you heard Jen talk about uh, the different work that's going on to model the elk populations in Wisconsin. And in order to do that, you have to have really – quality data and, and a lot of it and so that's where snapshot wisconsin comes in as i mentioned before it's a program to monitor wildlife it's a statewide program so we have the state divided into something like six thousand survey blocks where volunteers can sign up to host a trail camera and uh, volunteers can do this on their own private land on their local wildlife area 
uh, anywhere in the state where they have an interest in monitoring. And between the uh, northern and southern elk management zones, we have around 200 survey blocks that are, are concentrated in those areas. So making sure that we're collecting really good information on our elk populations. Right now, we have just under 100 volunteers who are monitoring those roughly 200 uh, survey blocks within um, the elk reintroduction areas. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very familiar with trail cameras. We've used them before, uh, but you know they're really great for monitoring. A lot of our different monitoring um, techniques rely on observational data. Uh, so, for example, you know, you have a biologist driving down the road collecting observations of fawns and does of deer. Um, but with a trail camera, you've got this fixed monitoring point that's out in the woods, monitoring 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week, all types of weather. And so they have become uh, more and more uh, relied upon by wildlife managers as a really good way to collect wildlife data. And Snapchat Wisconsin actually started uh, with monitoring the elk population. So as we were trying to figure out how are we going to set up this statewide monitoring network, how far do the cameras have to be off the ground, what kind of protocol should we uh, recommend, we started in these elk monitoring areas as a way to really refine the project and figure out what we were going to do. So the first place that we set up trail cameras with help of a whole bunch of um, biologists and Rocky Mountain Health Foundation volunteers and, and figured out um, how to do this. And we've been uh, monitoring there ever since. Wow. Now, so Snapshot Wisconsin is bigger than than Just Elk. Is that right? What are what are some of the other uh, things that you're trying to track? Or is it just, hey, we're, we're just looking for whatever walks by the camera? Yeah, for the most part, it's whatever walks by the camera. We want to catch everything from our smallest wildlife uh, all the way up to elk. Um, and even a few moose we've caught on camera in northern Wisconsin. Usually that's just the, the legs and the, the belly. Um, <laughs> but you still can tell that it's a, that it's a moose. Um, but yeah, we catch you know, squirrels on our camera. Although I would say for the most part, um, our program is the cameras are really set up to monitor anywhere from kind of mid to larger size wildlife. So our cameras are really great at capturing uh, deer, a variety of predator species, um, really, uh, really, you know, anything that you can think of, um, we've caught on camera, uh, including some of our rare species in Wisconsin, such as whooping crane. Um, a couple of times we've gotten images of cougar on camera as well. Wow. Any, anything surprise you that, that you've come across? Be like, whoa, I did not expect to see that. I'm, I'm sure there are some things you probably don't want to mention on a podcast, but, but th- things that are relevant to an outdoors related, related podcast, I need to back up because I've caught some stuff on my trail cameras too. Uh, but, um, yeah, things related for, for, uh, wildlife. Yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, a whole lot unexpected. Um, you know, one of the things that I think has been most interesting about the project is seeing, you know, unique behaviors. So our, photos. Um, our, our cameras are set up to take three pictures every single time they're triggered. Um, so you do get some of these images in a row and you know, you're able to pick up on things like if you're making a scrape or, or an opossum carrying a whole bunch of leaves with its tail to make a nest. 
Um, and you also capture some neat interactions between different species that you might not expect, like a deer encountering a skunk. Um, so those are some of the most uh, fun ones. And, and, of course, these photos are really capture the attention of the public as well. There's some really amazing shots um, of, say, like a red fox against the snowy background or a bull elk um, in the woods. Really make for some some pretty amazing um, photographs. Yeah, yes. Do these cameras are they are they a camera kind of like anybody would go and buy, or are they are they made unique for this specific project? Uh, yes, they are similar to what you could buy off the shelf. So the cameras that we use for the project are Bushnell trail cameras um, that are modified slightly from the off the shelf version. And they're modified uh, in a way that allows us to have standard settings across all trail cameras. So, like regular trail cameras, you can pull it out and say, you know, you only want it you take video, or you only want it to take one picture each time it's triggered. But we have it set up so that um, those settings are standard across all our cameras. These are preset. Our cameras also have some security privacy. Um, pieces built into them so the photos are encrypted um, meaning that not anybody can just walk up to the camera and take the SD card and plug it into their computer Um, you know the camera's basically unusable unless you're working through the snapshot Wisconsin program Um, so there's some specific things set up like that but for the most part they they look uh, and feel very similar to your standard off-the-shelf sales camera that you get at um, Cabela's or any foreign goods store Okay. And where, where are you guys training and having people hang these? Is it just kind of up to them where they're, where they're going to put them? Or do you have, you know, specific things that you want them to look for in a trail camera setup? And I have to be honest, I'm asking as a hunter at this point, uh, cause, cause I want to know how to get better pictures. Yeah. So we have an online training. Uh, so people don't have to travel anywhere to get trained in the project. We ask them to take an online training. It's a series of videos, a short little quiz that you have to take, and then um, before we send them the equipment to participate. Some of the, the basics of our protocols, like we said, are designed to try to capture a variety of wildlife species. So we first ask people to scout for good location. Um, we suggest that if there's water on the property, they're usually starting there. There's a stream or, or lake and to look for a wildlife trail um, and then follow it. Uh, oftentimes, we encourage them to look for an intersection of multiple trails. This is uh, a great place to place your camera. We suggest that they place it about uh, 10 to 15 feet from that intersection of trails and then uh, two and a half to three feet up. And that's uh, I think throws people at first because they're used to putting their trail cameras much higher up on the tree. Um, but depending on how tall you are, that's, you know, waist height or below. Um, and so it's, it's pretty low, but that height surprisingly allows us to capture a good variety of species, you know, all the way up to, to, um, to elk, uh, if you have it far back enough away from the trail. Uh, and that's generally the advice that we provide for people who are putting in snapshot cameras. Um, but I will say that our cameras are a bit different in that volunteers are responsible for helping us to maintain them. Um, but those cameras were primarily uh, set up by either um, biologists or specific volunteers to get the placement just right. So 
who are very familiar with the, the landscape and the types of habitat that elk are using in both the northern and southern elk management zones. So making sure that we can maximize the detection of elk on trail cameras. So those are set up with, um, with a little bit more specific for elk in mind compared to our general um, snapshot Wisconsin volunteer who might be posting a trail camera on their private land or local wildlife area. Yeah. So when it, when it comes to uh, hanging these, I'm sure there are a bunch of them on public land, right? Uh, how often do these cameras grow legs and walk off? Because uh, mine tend to do that from time to time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, we really haven't had too much trouble with that. Um, I attribute that to a couple different things. One, I think, is the remote areas that we're putting these trail cameras in. We a big part of our protocol is to make sure that we're avoiding uh, the of us detecting humans. We want as few human photos as possible. This project is about monitoring wildlife, so we ask folks to set it up so that there's no, um, you know, hiking trails or structures visible in the background. Uh, we also do supply for public lands, um, security boxes as well as cable locks um, to actually lock the camera to the tree. And uh, the other piece of it being that our cameras, as I said before, aren't usable um, if you don't if you're not working through the Snapchat Wisconsin program. And we do notify folks that through a little sticker, a little label. Um, so unfortunately, some of those cameras uh, do walk off. But whoever they walked off with, they um, they're not going to be of any use. You know, they're essentially uh, garbage if you're if you're not um, running it through our program. So uh, so far, we've had pretty. Um, Pretty good luck, I would say, with this camera Yeah, I, I was going to ask if you guys marked them in any way. Like, hey, this this isn't just Joe Blow out here putting a camera out. Like, we're we're actually using this for something really important. Please don't, please don't touch these cameras. Uh, maybe you could send me some of those stickers. I'll just put them on mine, and people will uh, leave them alone at, at this point. No, I, I I haven't had too many uh, actually disappear, but I had a string of times last year where people just vandalized my cameras and on different properties, just all over the place. It's like, why would you just vandalize it? Like you can, you could take it if you want. I'd rather you take it. And at least, at least somebody has a good camera at that point, rather than just tearing it up and leaving it hanging from the tree. But, uh, well, I, I want to shift gears and, uh, talk just a little bit, uh, about the Wisconsin elk hunting season. So there, how many tags are afforded at this point? So, uh, yeah, that's a great question, Josh, there. Um, in 2020 here, um, we, we provide what's uh, a quota, a target goal of how many animals we want to remove from the landscape. Um, so, again, here in 2022, we, uh, we went through our, our elk advisory committee off of population estimates that uh, Jen here and her team provided. Uh, the committee remu- uh, reviewed those recommendations or those uh, population estimates and provided uh, a population estimate uh, recommendation for harvest that we send up to what's called the DNR wildlife leadership team. Um, once that wildlife leadership team kind of approves the committee recommendation, it then goes to the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board for final approval. So here in 2022, we, we approved a quota of what's, uh, what is eight total animals. Now, um, we also provide a recommendation on to which elk zone those are to be harvested from. So in our first five full elk hunting season here, 2022 being the 
uh, the most recent and first being 2018, um, those, uh, those quota uh, harvests have all taken place in the Northern Elk Zone, uh, which falls within what's known as the ceded territory. So the ceded territory are uh, public properties in which um, Native Americans and uh, uh, different tribe, uh, different tribes of the uh, Lake Superior Chippewa, the Ojibwa peoples, have rights to uh, to hunt and gather on. So, fifty percent of the quota within the ceded territory goes to uh, the the uh, Ojibwa people of the the Greater Lake Superior area. So, in total, that's eleven tribes in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they all operate through what's known as the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. Uh, basically, their their natural resources body, similar to uh, to the DNR here in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so half of those tags uh, are, are available to them to to harvest. So um, like this year, in the years past, fifty percent. Uh, this year, that that allocates out to four tags for uh, state of Wisconsin hunters and four tags for tribal hunters. Um, this being the fifth year, it's actually the last year that Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is also involved in our elk drawing. So per Wisconsin state statute, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has had the ability to raffle off one tag per year for the first five years uh, to a Wisconsin resident uh, that, that meets all the criteria of the elk hunt application. Uh, and then that hunter joins the pool of, of Wisconsin hunters to do so. So uh, in 2018, our first hunt uh, through 2020, our quota was 10 animals per year. Uh, and this was simply based on a rule that was put in place uh, in the early 2000s with our original elk management plan. So um, there was no real data that was assigned to it. It was uh, more or less an arbitrary number that was selected, and that was Five percent of bulls in the total population starting at 200 animals. So when our population hit 200 animals, uh, an elk hunting season would open, and we'd harvest up to five percent of that, which would be 10 animals. So uh, we were kind of tied to that. Um, in the back end of 2019, we were able to get that rule removed, uh, and folks like Jen were able to start looking at our. Uh, our bull distribution and uh, the analysis of the total population and recommend a stronger number to go with versus this arbitrary 5%. So, um, so that's when we started making the decisions to, to kind of fine tune how many we, animals we want to remove to the landscape. So I can throw it over to Jen and kind of talk about where that played into it. I know she's kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe a little more in depth on her process and where it, it relates to today's hunt. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this is always, it's always, um, I don't know, this, this work is where we bridge the gap between science and policy, right? Because I'm coming in with scientists providing data, but I hear this, this phrase a lot, science-based decision-making. And as a scientist, uh, you know, I am biased towards thinking it's pretty important, right, in management, but Science is great for informing management, but not actually telling us what we should do because it's really values. Like what do the people of Wisconsin want for the elk population? And there are a lot of objectives that we're trying to meet. Part of the advisory committee is considering a lot of different stakeholders involved from hunters to agricultural interests, from tourism, et cetera. And so that's why it's really important to have those conversations and identify what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to avoid? 
and what are the metrics? So what are the herd metrics that we can use to directly link our data and what we know about the population and to those objectives? And then again, develop these decision, these forecasting tools to evaluate how various management actions, including quotas, are going to affect those herd metrics that are aligned with our values. And so I think about it a lot as, you know, think about Google Maps. This is an amazing scientific tool, right, that tells us how to get from A to B. It takes into account traffic. It takes into account um, all the different pathways you could get, you could take from getting to A to B. But what Google Maps can't do, what any fancy algorithm can't do, is tell you where your B is. It can't tell you where you want to go. So that's where people come in. That's where the stakeholders come in. That's where um, Josh's work is just so critical to figure out where are we trying to go with our elk population? What do we want it to look like? And then I come in and try to provide the best science and forecasting models to show us the best way to get there, or at least evaluate transparently uh, what the very, how the various alternatives that are on the table, how that's going to affect those herd metrics that we care about. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are some of those other, you mentioned stakeholders. I mean, and, and I've, I've heard like, like what you said a, a second ago, science-based decision-making, and then there's this whole social piece that comes in, right? So what are some of those other stakeholders that, that have uh, influence, I guess, on the way decisions are made? Josh, you want to take this one? Sure. So, yeah, um, on, on the Wisconsin Elk Advisory Committee, we have uh, what we call internal partners, DNR partners. So um, we have two biologists throughout the state, myself and, and my counterpart down out of Black River Falls with the Central Elk Management Zone, uh, Christina Maley. Um, we, we have two wildlife supervisors, so both mine and her supervisors are, are on that committee, as well as what we call our, our uh, species section supervisors. Um, he's kind of uh, the individual, or I should say the, uh, the previous was the individual we went to with any questions. They actually sponsor that committee. Um, additionally speaking, we, we also have other wildlife staff, like our, wildlife, uh, our state wildlife health veterinarian, uh, as well as uh, our egg damage uh, specialist that, um, that kind of help out in that process. We also have a, a designated warden that falls uh, within a, uh, of management zone that kind of handles uh, law enforcement concerns. Uh, we have uh, uh, an individual that would be a forestry and recreational uh, background or specialist that, that kind of talk about the, the interest within the state there as well. Um, you know, obviously folks like Jen in the, in the research department, she's a, a major player in the, in the, not only the elk advisory committee, but also uh, many of our other species advisory committees. Um, outside we're, we're looking at, you know, some of our major partners, obviously probably the biggest one being Rocky mountain elk foundation. You know, if it wasn't for Rocky mountain elk foundation, we wouldn't have elk in the state of Wisconsin, you know, not only their backing from, uh, from both the 1995 and, and the supplemental releases since then, but, uh, but also all the funding to create projects, both research and management projects that have occurred on the landscape over the years. Uh, you know, you're talking about millions of dollars that RMEF has put into elk management across the U.S. Uh, and no different here in the state of Wisconsin. So uh, they're one of the key players. Uh, public land ownerships like uh, the U.S. Forest Service and local county departments, uh, county forestry and parks departments across the state. Uh, Wisconsin Bow Hunters and Wisconsin Conservation Congress uh, Association. 
the Wisconsin Farm Bureau and Cranberry Growers Association are our partners as well. So um, really a, a large group of individuals that, that kind of bring that to the table uh, for a lot of those discussions. And, um, and you know, it's needed from top to bottom. Everyone needs to say, like, like Jen mentioned, if it was as easy as just throwing animals on the landscape, that'd be great. But, you know, we want to make sure that everyone's represented evenly and, and that these animals are, are not only uh, uh, supported by the habitat, but supported by the people of Wisconsin as well. Yeah, that's really good. I, I want to talk a little bit about the hunting piece. So not a lot of tags. When does that hunting season take place? Yeah, so every every year the elk hunting season opens uh, the nearest Saturday, but not before October 15th. So um, here this year, uh, October 15th, 2022, is the opening of, of this year's elk hunting season. So this is the earliest that it ever, ever happened on the landscape. Uh, and that's that's only for state of Wisconsin hunters. So we don't have the ability to set a tribal hunting season. So they kind of operate within their guidelines for, for their uh, species harvest uh, under Glyphwick. And, and again, uh, the 11 tribes of the uh, Lake Superior Chippewa. Gotcha. Now I'm curious about the, the timing of that. So uh, around mid October, a lot of folks want to head West for those September first openers and, and hunting you know, rutting bulls and that kind of thing. Is that a decision that's made from a reproductive standpoint to try to allow the elk to kind of do their thing or what's, what's the reasoning there? Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and, uh, we've actually got a, a different uh, research project we're kind of cracking into right now that, that directly plays into that, or, or at least historically has played into this decision. Um, and that, that's kind of our, our calf surviving model and, and calf searching effort. So, um, you know, not to go too far out of the way, but uh, we've uh, we've annually for many, many years, with the exception of the last handful, um, monitored our cow elk through the springtime and uh, and gone into the forest and tried to find those calves uh, at a very young age. You know, when a cow disassociates from a herd elk being a herd style animal, they move away, try to get away from all those big, smelly friends of theirs and and find a nice secure location. And when they stop moving, uh, much like any one of us, you know, if you have a baby, you're probably not doing a lot of physical activity shortly thereafter. So, um, so when that cow kind of holds up and remains in a tight spot, we get a search crew together and we go out in the woods and, and kind of walk through that area, similar to like a very narrow deer drive, looking behind all stumps, rocks, bushes, etc., cetera, uh, until hopefully find that little calf. And, uh, over the years, we've collared over 200 elk calves, and and we're studying, you know, what uh, what is or has killed them over that time frame, and how many of those make it to a um, to at least one year, if not adult age class. So what that's all done is is uh, you look at this, and we know when a calf was born, we can backdate that. You know, an elk's gestation period is about 240 to 260 days, somewhere in that 245, 250 on average. So we can backdate that, and and most of our our breeding occurs from mid to late September, uh, kind of trickling into early October. So with us studying that October 15th deadline, we kind of protect that, that breeding time frame. Um, we know that that's very important with a small herd and, and it may not remain that way forever, but at this point in time with how our population is, is growing and we're putting that emphasis on that, we want to make sure that, uh, that we're not impacting the reproduction while, uh, uh, while still allowing that recreational opportunity. Yeah, I, I'm sure calves have a lot working against them, 
right when they're they're uh, fresh on the on the ground. I'm curious about calf recruitment. What is the what's the survival rate for these animals? Yeah, so it varies quite a bit. I mean, year to year it varies. Uh, for the different herds, it varies. I think our row's most recent estimates are between 50 and 60% survival rate. Um, but again, that's something that we're analyzing that data right now. So we're going to have a better understanding of it within the next year or two, I think. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now shifting really hard from calf success rate to hunter success rate. I've got to know, like, there's not a lot of tags. What kind of, uh, what kind of hunter success rate are, are the folks who do get a tag seeing? Yeah, our, our assumption when it comes to quotas is, is basically 100%. And we know that to, to sit at 100% is extremely, extremely rare. Uh, but um, over the course of our first five hunting seasons, um, we've, we've had very, very good hunter success. Um, you know, the, the first three hunting seasons, uh, we had five tags issued. Uh, two of those three years, uh, hunters filled all quota. Um, unfortunately the first year we had a couple other, other incidents, um, uh, one with, uh, an individual that didn't quite follow the, the rules as close as he should have. Uh, and then another that, that didn't, uh, harvest an elk. Um, and it, it kind of seemed to be more of a, a personal preference decision on, on harvest, et cetera. Um, over the last two years, each of which we've had a quota of four, um, two years ago, we had all four tags harvested and filled. And last year we had three of the four uh, uh, filled as well. So um, again, we're, we're very, very close. And then on the, the Native American side, uh, they're right there as well. So um, they opted not to harvest any elk in 2020 um, because of various reasons, you know, obviously COVID being one of those. Uh, so they didn't take any, any elk that year, but uh, the other four years uh, or, or three of the other four years, I apologize this year, not happening yet. They have filled their quota at 100%. So, um, the biggest difference between uh, uh, the Native Americans and the, the state of Wisconsin hunters has been uh, trophy selectivity. You know, we've got hunters on, on the landscape that have drawn a once-in-a-lifetime tag here through the Wisconsin state draw, albeit RMEF or, uh, or DNR. Um, they're, they're out there uh, attempting, or I should say in large, attempting to, to harvest the biggest bull they possibly can, right? They've They've, uh, they've waited on this tag uh, since maybe the inception of the, the 1995 release or, or whatever, and, and they've gotten lucky enough and, and drawn said tag. And uh, so they're going to give themselves every opportunity to do that. And, and it's been really cool to see how every individual is different. You know, some people, uh, a trophy is anything. And in Wisconsin here, um, any elk with at least six inches of antler is a legal bull elk for harvest. So we've had a spike harvested and we've had, you know, large six by sixes harvested. So it's, it's kind of a trophy dependent on the individual, but uh, basically ticking right below that hundred percent range, you know, somewhere 90 between 90 and a hundred percent. And, uh, and we know that ultimately that's going to wane. The more tags we issue, we're going to start, start running off of uh, a more desired success rate, similar to that you see in Western States or other species, but, uh, as of right now, um, with the limited amount of draw, we expect all of our hunters to uh, to put forth the effort to be successful. Excellent, excellent, Christine. I've got a question for you that I should have asked earlier, and I did not. If folks want to get involved with Snapshot Wisconsin, where would you send them? Like, is there a website that they can go to, or how how can they look into that? 
So the best way to learn more about Snapshot uh, Wisconsin would be by going to the DNR webpage, uh, dnr.wi.gov. And there's a little place where you can search on our webpage and just type in Snapshot Wisconsin. That's going to take you to our main webpage where you can find the links about how to host a trail camera. Um, or even if you want to just help classify and identify what's in the photos, if you live far from the Elkhurst um, in southern Wisconsin, you don't want to make the drive out. There's so many that you can help um, contribute to the project and self-management. So that's probably the best place to start is at the Wisconsin DNR website. Awesome. I'm going to edit that and make it sound like you said that earlier. So uh, it'll it'll be great. But, uh, well, guys, I really what, – what's that? I was just going to say, I don't know, Christina, maybe I'll do it for you, but there's some pretty great elk swag at the Snapshot website as well. I only say that because maybe I just bought a bunch of shirts myself. But Oh, nice. <laughs> there's a fantastic elk shirt on there right now, and I think everybody in my family is getting it for Christmas. Nice, <laughs> nice. I'll, I'll link that in the uh, in the show notes of this podcast. So folks can go, uh, folks can go find that. Well, I really, really appreciate your time guys. I, I have learned an absolute ton. This has been fantastic. Is there anything that we didn't cover that we need to need to bring up or any parting words that you're like, Hey, folks really need to know this. Uh, yeah, a couple of things I, I just say as, as like Christine and, and Jen both said, you know, visit our, our DNR website and, and search elk in Wisconsin. You're going to have a lot of different options from, from snapshot to history of Wisconsin to the elk application and hunting periods and, and all that, which for anyone that doesn't know, you know, March 1st through May 31st of every year, we got a three month window to, to apply for a Wisconsin elk hunting license. You know, as of right now, that's, uh, that goes out to, uh, um, Wisconsin residents only. So really cool for folks of the state of Wisconsin here, you know, you got an opportunity to, to go after elk in your backyard. And, and it's kind of funny, you know, when, when you speak with elk hunters every year, they all say the same thing, you know, it, it was a great $10 donation and I didn't expect to be drawn. So uh, it's, it's really <laughs> cool to, to have those conversations with folks. And, and uh, another thing related to that is um, it's a $10 application and seven of that $10 is earmarked to go back to elk management research and monitoring within the state of Wisconsin. So, it's really cool that Wisconsin elk hunter applicants are now supporting elk management within the state of Wisconsin. So uh, really, really cool on, on that front. And, and lastly, you know, feel free to reach out to us anytime. You know, we're, we're always happy to, to speak about our, our, uh, uh, our players or our, our part of the game. And, and uh, we love doing this. We love working out on, on the landscape of Wisconsin for the people of Wisconsin that, that have entrusted with our, our, our wildlife here in the state. Yeah, that, that's a really good point that you just brought up. Um, I would encourage folks, hey, if you, even if you don't plan on hunting elk or think you'll ever be drawn, go buy it. Go do it anyway. Just go go do the application. Like you said, it's a great $10 donation. I always tell as many people as possible, you know, go buy a duck stamp, even if you're not going to hunt ducks this year. It's just good for us as outdoorsmen. So go do the same thing with, uh, with an elk application. Anything else that we didn't get to that we should? I'll just throw out a thank you as well. I mean, between Snapshot, between cast searching and all the other projects that we have at the DNR, we couldn't do it without the support of Wisconsin residents and our volunteers. You know, these volunteers who are going out and uh, facing elements, putting out the cameras, they're helping us with cast searching, walking through mosquitoes and flies and all that fun stuff with pretty low success rates. And now we've got a bear project too, where people are letting us come on their land if they find a bear den for us to survey. So, 
I mean, really, we couldn't do this without the support of, of folks in the state. And we just feel very grateful that we get to do our jobs and hopefully, you know, help with conservation in Wisconsin. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Well said, Jen and, and Josh, it always reminds me of um, the incredible dedication people Wisconsin has their natural resources. It makes it a really special place to work. Well, guys, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for taking your time. Folks have, uh, I'm sure, learned a lot. And if they want to learn more, they can go to the DNR website. And I'll put links to all that good stuff uh, in the description of this show. So thanks for coming on. And that is it for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thank you to Josh and Jen and Christine for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about Snapshot Wisconsin, you can head over to their website. The website will be in the show notes for this episode. Or you can head over to the Wisconsin DNR website, Google it, whatever you want to do, you'll find it. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Deer Lab. Go support the partners that support this show. And uh, hey, until next time, make sure you're doing something to get outside and enjoy the natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen. Mm -hmm.